1920, there was a man named Earl Dixon who worked for Johnson & Johnson, and he was married to a wonderful woman who loved to cook. The problem was she had a hard time preparing a meal without cutting herself. She just had a really difficult time with knives. And wanting to help his wife, he thought up an idea. What if I took some medical tape and put a little piece of gauze on it with a special coating that maybe wouldn't stick to the skin? And so he was able to create this, uh, this strip of medical tape with a piece of gauze that wouldn't stick so his wife could cook even when she cut herself with knives. And he was mentioning it to one of the marketing guys at Johnson & Johnson and as you might expect, that's why we have the Band-Aid today. It's like, wow, let's market this thing. It's a huge hit. There are a lot of things that we take for granted that have happened because of incidental decisions or maybe even mistakes or setbacks or solving problems. Another CEO, Richard Carlton of 3M, said, our company has indeed stumbled upon to some of its new products, but never forget you can only stumble if you're moving. You can only stumble if you're moving. We've heard personal illustrations. Maybe you've heard some of these. Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team. Walt Disney was once fired from a newspaper editor job because, quote, he didn't have any good ideas. Winston Churchill failed the sixth grade. Thomas Edison was told by a teacher that he would never learn anything. J.M. Barry once said, we're all failures. At least the best of us are. At least the best of us. So why then do we view failure? Why do we view life setbacks as permanent, as labels that we have to wear? I think our quest for perfection, our quest to be shed of this notion that we mess up, that we stumble upon things instead of achieve great things, is part of our culture. As a result, when things go drastically wrong, we're sometimes not able to deal with it or we deflect blame or we try to figure out what could explain this away other than I just messed up or I just discovered something accidentally or maybe through my own failure or mistakes. I like what Jason said earlier as he was introducing one of our songs about our tendency, even though we know we ought to trust in God, we have a tendency to want to chart our own course. I was in a mediation conference this past Friday and the keynote speaker used a term for a common ailment, and I liked what he said about why we don't listen to other people. He said, we have this ailment called, I got this-itis. I got this. I got it. And we do it with other people, don't we? I don't need to listen to what your ideas are. I got this. We do it with God, too. God says this, and we say, you know, God, I got this. I got this right now. And we move into our own direction in life, only to be corrected, as Peter is in our passage today, we're going to be back in Mark chapter 14, verses 53 to 72, if you want to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. You can consider this maybe part two of last week's message that Adam did, because last week Adam talked about the section right before this where, Peter was, where Jesus was predicting Peter's denial. And this passage is actually, we're going to walk through Peter's denial in the courtyard and, and the trial that Jesus had at the Sanhedrin. So a lot of themes, a lot of overlapping with what we talked about last week. And as Adam and I were talking about this, we just, we just arrived at the notion that if there's ever a subject or a topic that we probably could use two weeks on, it's this one. It's how do we, how do we encounter God's redemption in the setbacks in our lives? So after Jesus' arrest, he was taken to the high priest for a trial, quote unquote. It's not an official trial. It's the Sanhedrin, kind of a, a kangaroo court almost. In verse 54 of Mark chapter 14, 
tells us that Peter followed at a distance and he sat down in the courtyard by a fire. From other passages, we learn that there were maybe a couple other guys that were nearby that were maybe hiding in the shadows. But it's clear that Peter was alone. He was the one who went all the way into the courtyard, which is kind of amazing to me because if someone said, you know, you're going to be in a car accident on Interstate 270 today, I would not get in my car. Jesus said, you know, you're going to deny me before the rooster crows. And so Peter just wanders right along. But I think he wandered right along because he had this, this devotion that sometimes was misled, but nonetheless was, was a deep commitment of heart to be in the middle of this mix of whatever was going on. So meanwhile, the Sanhedrin was conducting this trial. They were seeking testimony that would warrant arresting Jesus and, and, and getting rid of Jesus once and for all, even putting him to death. They were hearing from various witnesses, but the text here in Mark actually says that the testimony of the witnesses were contradictory, so they couldn't even get a consistent message of the accusations against Jesus. They tried to manufacture charges, but they just weren't sticking. And Jesus, it says, remained silent until the high priest asked him this question. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus answered that, I am, and you will see the son of man uh, sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now this was enough, we learn in verse 64, for the high priest to charge him with blasphemy. So all of the manufactured charges weren't sticking, but if Jesus was, was actually comparing himself with the Son of Man that the Old Testament scriptures talk about, that equating himself with God in any way, he could put, pin blasphemy on him, and that would be the charge. The anger of the religious leaders boiled over, they began to beat him, they began to spit on him. And while Jesus was going through this ordeal, he was proclaiming his identity as the son of God, as God himself, the redeemer who God sent to redeem mankind from this brokenness and lostness. And while that was going on, there was another scene unfolding in the courtyard right outside. Read with me, starting with verse 66 of Mark 14. Meanwhile, Peter was in the courtyard below. One of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself by the fire. She looked at him closely and said, you were one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And he went away of the entry, out the entryway just as the rooster crowed. Then a servant girl saw him standing there. She began telling others, this man is definitely one of them. But Peter again denied it. A little later, some other bystanders confronted Peter. You must be one of them because you are a Galilean. Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you know me. And he broke down and he wept. This text is a text of ultimate contrast. Mark, as you recall, is recording the life of Jesus through the eyes of Peter. For Peter and for Mark, the disparity of what was happening in this scene is the epic battle of all of history. The battle between our brokenness and sinfulness and God's redemptive plan for mankind. The story of the high priest's residence and what happened there shows God's faithfulness and our sinfulness. 
That's what was happening here. One contrast that we need to note is that Jesus, while he was humbly proclaiming truth, Peter was boldly denying the truth. So Jesus in this trial was humbly, quietly being charged and claiming his rightful place as God's son. Peter boldly, repeatedly denying the truth. At no time are we more prone to lash out to our accusers than when we're being falsely accused. It's true of all of us. I mean, accuse me of something that I've already done. I'll probably still deny it at first and need to deal with that. But if I, if I haven't done it, then I'm really going to dig in my heels because it's so wrong and it feels so unjust to be falsely accused. Keep in mind that Jesus could have changed this scenario. He could have changed this court scene in a heartbeat, but he chose not to. He could have stopped them in their tracks, but he always kept his mission in mind. He always knew why he was here and what God was doing. His commitment to his mission allowed him to obey the Father. Here's what Isaiah 53 says. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. That prophecy was being fulfilled in this trial before the Sanhedrin. The high priest, seeing the line of questioning going nowhere, asked, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Matthew tells us that that he actually put Jesus under oath when he asked him this question. And the Lord replies in that magnificent phrase, I am, drawing from Daniel's prophecy about the son of man, the Messiah, who had come to save God's people. Those in the room reacted Jesus had taken for himself what was the prerogative of God only, and they were not going to stand for that. Remember, these were the religious leaders. These were the people that the Jewish folks would have looked at as the good guys, the the keepers of truth, the ones who were the, the righteous ones. And they said, this cannot happen. They responded in rage, beating Jesus. We need to keep that in mind. These were, in that setting, the good guys, the religious leaders the pastors, the elders, the church leaders that we might have in our day. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6 says, I offered my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mockery and spitting. Again, prophecy from Isaiah being fulfilled in this very court before the Sanhedrin. It's made a real indelible mark in, in the mind and heart of Peter. If you read first, it's important to read first and second Peter in light of what happened in this chapter, I think. In first Peter chapter two, verse 23, it says, he did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. Now, if we're just doing a study of 1 Peter, that's really cool. But if you're doing a study of 1 Peter in light of what happened in this courtyard this day, that takes on new meaning, doesn't it? Like Peter saying, I remember what I did that day. But here's what was true of Jesus. He did not retaliate when he suffered. This narrative would make a great television story because there's so many different narratives and different lines that are going on at the same time. At the same time, Jesus is going through this trial in the Sanhedrin. Separately in this other scene, Peter's going through a very different trial, but a very serious trial of his own, isn't he? His trial is a trial of soul. 
His trial is a trial of his very being and identity. His trial is a trial of whether he is going to stay loyal to Jesus, where he's going to understand his brokenness and surrender to him. He somehow made his way to the fire where the guards were warming themselves. Imagine what must have been going on in his mind that night. He was one of the first apostles to follow Jesus. He had been along the whole time. He'd walked with Jesus, saw the miracle, saw the healing, heard the teaching, saw the example, sat down with Jesus, listened to him, had the hard confrontations with him. He said earlier he would go all the way to death. He tried to battle the mob and fight for Jesus. It all sort of blurred together now in his mind. Why was Jesus not defending himself? Why was Jesus not following through with what we thought he was going to do? Why did Jesus stop me when I tried to protect him? Why did Jesus... Why, why, why? All these questions were blurring together. And then there was a fire. And a warm fire on a cool evening is a really, really good place to reflect, isn't it? We did this in our neighborhood last night. We were out for a few hours in one of our neighbor's driveways with uh, a fire. And it's amazing the conversations you don't expect to have that you start having when you're sitting around a warm fire on a cool night. And that's what happened to Peter. He comes to the fire, cool night, contemplation. You have a lot on your mind. And that contemplation was broken by a question, a question by a girl, a servant girl. She noticed Peter there and said that he looked like the others. She'd probably even seen Peter with Jesus at some time. So she verbally identified him as a companion of Jesus. And he said, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. I don't know. I don't understand what you're talking about. You've got this wrong. And he moved to another area of the compound where there was another girl who confronted him about being with Jesus. Probably very nervous, his anxiety showing. And once again, he denied even knowing Jesus. And then in verse 71, he called down curses on himself. I don't know this man you are talking about. The Greek text, literally, he began to curse. Anathematize is the word. He began to curse and swear, I don't know this man. Don't say I'm with him. It's a declaration of complete contempt, complete denial. Please don't try to soften what Peter did in that moment. Please don't try to take the edge off. Please don't try to give it a gold or silver lining. At the very point in which Jesus was taking a beating for him, he was saying, do not say that I'm one of his followers. One commentator claims that here Peter is the one, while Jesus is being accused of committing blasphemy, Peter's the one committing blasphemy. He's the one who's denying the truth of the one who is a savior. This would make his fall more dreadful, a class A failure. His character, his reputation are done. How could anyone put their confidence in this guy? He bails out when the chips are down. A lot of what we read in contemporary publishing about failure and success is helpful, but a lot of times it it doesn't really label it like it needs to be labeled. We call it setbacks. We call it obstacles, challenges. 
I can fail as a writer, a salesman, an athlete, a musician, a business person. I can fail as a mom and learn a lot of lessons or a dad. But when my failure includes my character, when my failure includes a demonstration of my moral uh, compass, then I know what Peter experienced. Lying to family members or coworkers, having an extramarital affair, hurting people with uncontrolled anger, staying quiet about your faith when the door is open, ignoring the plight of the poor, of the unborn, of the fatherless, gossiping, ruining, ruining other people's reputations. The list of ways we deny Jesus goes on and on and on, doesn't it? We have a catalog of ways. And we have to come to grips with our own inadequacy and our inability to please God, not just in what we do. We sometimes default to that. Jesus forgives us for our sins being the things I've done wrong. But before we get to the things we've done wrong, we've got to realize the person I am to do those things. Hudson Taylor said, all God's giants were weak people. In terms of our own witness for Jesus, we have to empty ourselves. Empty ourselves by owning that even our character is a failure. It's not just what Peter did, it's who he was to do that. If, if someone would steal your car in the parking lot this morning, that would be an act of sin, an act of stealing a car. But I would propose that before that person stole the car, that person was a car thief. Because only car thieves steal cars, right? I mean, if I'm not a car thief, I won't steal a car. So stealing the car is the act of being a car thief. But before the act, there is a car thief living inside my heart which really is a predicament for us, isn't it? Because that means there probably are a lot of us that are car thieves that just haven't stolen cars yet. Or put whatever sin, whatever activity, um, and that's the most dangerous thing in the church is when we just look at the act of sins and we don't realize, oh my, God's not looking at the acts I've committed. God's looking at what I'm wanting to do in my heart or what if I could and get away with it, I would do. That's a character issue, friends. And if we don't, if we don't allow our brokenness and face the evil and the brokenness in our character, then we have the redemptive work of Christ only being applied to our activity and not to the very depths of where it needs to be applied. Another contrast. Jesus withstood this beating with the religious leaders. Peter broke down. His beating wasn't from the religious leaders. It was under the weight of his own failure. God strengthened Jesus, provided him with the strength to endure because he was on this mission. Peter the text says, fell apart when he heard the rooster crow. Have you ever wondered why Jesus said the rooster? Why that was the signal? Peter lived in an agrarian society. I imagine this man heard a rooster crow every day for the rest of his life. Have you thought about that? Like, really, Jesus? You've got to give me a reminder of my epic failure that I'm going to face every single day. Yeah. And I wonder if at first it wasn't painful and later it became a, a sign of God's faithfulness, but we'll get to that later. Jesus had predicted this would happen. Peter's worst nightmare came true. He denied knowing Jesus. And the violence and sorrow when he heard that rooster crow and it all came crashing down of who he was, the man he was and what he did the verb epibolo, is, it's a violent word. He threw himself over. He cast himself down. The weight of his sin and his 
betrayal of Jesus just crushed him to the ground. Have you ever been there? I know I have. Left with the pain of disappointment of knowing not just what I've done, but who I've been and how that's impacted and hurt people in my life, how it's impacted God, how it's been a denial of the faith that I claim. Perhaps you even made a commitment that you would change. You're not gonna do that anymore. You're not gonna be that man. You're not gonna be that woman. And oh, here it is again. I'm still that man. And this is another challenge for us because while we fight sin, we are going to be sinful until we get to heaven, right? Until we leave this place, it's unrealistic to think that I am not going to have failures and setbacks and brokenness and sin in my life before I get to heaven. But sometimes we, we, it's almost like we pretend that's not really gonna happen. And so it's kind of a paradox because we don't want to sin, we need to be on a path of sanctification and growing and obedience, but we know the true truth is until we get to heaven, we're going to, we're gonna be broken and we're gonna sin and we're gonna let each other down and we're gonna let God down. And those two truths are true at the same time. And that's a lesson we, we learn from Peter here. As terrible as this guilt is, may feel like it will never go away. It brings us back to what was going on with Jesus in that courtroom, doesn't it? If we really let what Peter did and what happened to him be as ugly as it really is, then we can really understand what was going on in the Sanhedrin with Jesus. If we, if we try to soften what happened in the courtyard with Peter, then we don't get the full impact of what was going on with Jesus. In Joel chapter two, we read this. This is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there's still time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting and weeping and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God For he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. There were dark days ahead for Peter. But there was a promise that what was going on with Jesus in the Sanhedrin was the very answer to the betrayal Peter was experiencing. And when we blend those together, sometimes when I talk to people who are facing Deep, deep brokenness. I've blown it bigger than I've ever blown it before. Um, and, and it's been true in my life too. I sometimes say, I'm really sorry that you have to experience the depth of God's grace that you're experiencing right now. Because in a way, in order for you to experience it, you have to need it. And you need it really, really big right now. But at the same time, isn't it amazing and wonderful that you never, you never outlast or outreach that grace? You never get to a place where, oh, your brokenness is just two or three notches too much for the grace of God. So I'm sorry, Peter, you need that level of grace, but isn't it awesome that it's there for you? So let's just jump ahead a little bit into this narrative of what's going on. So Peter throws himself down, faces his brokenness, trying to put this together. Jesus arrested, crucified, put in the tomb, says in Mark 16, after the Sabbath, the women went to the tomb. 
We don't know a lot about what happened with the disciples. Maybe they were hanging together. Maybe they were running around trying to figure out what was going on. I'm assuming Peter was beating himself up. I mean, I would be, wouldn't you? It's like, oh, great. This is it's not bad enough. Jesus is dead now. And, but my last memory of what happened with me and him was I betrayed him. I denied knowing him. So the women went to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body for final burial. And the stone was rolled away and the angel was sitting upon it. Jesus had risen and they were frightened. And here's what the angel said in Mark chapter 16. The angel said, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Look at the place where they laid him. And here's the part I love in verse 7. Go tell his disciples, comma, including Peter, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you into Galilee and you'll see him there just as he told you before. It's almost like Jesus, and I'm making this up, but Jesus was saying to the angels, all right, I'm out of here now. Some women are gonna come. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell them to go, tell the disciples that I'm, I'm, I'm risen, I'm gonna meet them. And make sure you put Peter's name in there. That guy's had a horrible weekend. He's just had an awful weekend. Make sure you tell Peter specifically that I'm the one who's out of the tomb now. Jesus is out of the tomb. Do you understand that? And I'm glad that John's name was in there too. Go tell the disciples and tell that loser, John, that Jesus is out of the tomb. The character flaws, redeemed. The sinful actions, redeemed. The guilt, forgiven. The shame, removed. Life given where there's darkness and death. In Luke chapter 12, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 24, verse 12, it says, Peter, when they told all the disciples this, Peter like jumps up out of his chair and just dashes out of that room to go see what had happened here. He knew he had to find his Lord again. Jesus would later, as Adam said last week, reinstate Peter. He becomes one of the major spokespersons for Jesus and for the New Testament church. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, in fact, I'll, I'll read this for you. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10 says, be sober-minded and alert. This is Peter writing. Your enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, lion looking for someone to devour. After what we've just looked at, can you imagine what Peter means? It's like, let me roll up my sleeves and show you the scars, guys. I know what it's like to be in the mouth of the lion. I know what it's like to be chewed up. Then he said, um, resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. We don't like that part, that you know, this is common. You know, we're, suffering is part of the Christian life, but it is. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you've suffered for a little while. I'm thinking, boy, this guy's thought through this, hasn't he? After, after this redemptive work, God is going to restore, establish, strengthen, and support you. It's almost like Peter's giving us a little bit of his autobiography there of what happened after this courtyard experience. And then if I share one more Peter 
passage with you. Um, The Gospel of Luke is written, and it is the last gospel written chronologically. So Luke is the historian. He writes the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts we have in our canon as looking back. So after everything else had happened, he's writing this history book. And in Luke chapter 6, he's explaining the disciples who Jesus chose, the apostles, and he lists all of them And it's probably worth looking at. So let's look at Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, starting with verse 12. During those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent all night in prayer. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples, and he chose 12 of them, whom he called apostles, Simon who he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew the, and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, comma, who became a traitor. Question for you. Why does Judas get a comma who became a traitor, and Peter doesn't get a comma who was such a coward he denied Jesus in the courtyard? Where's Peter's comma? Peter doesn't get a comma because he repented. Because he came to Jesus, to the one, he he recognized what Jesus was doing in that court and on the cross, and he was restored. So in God's book, Peter doesn't have a comma. And let me talk about that in our own lives. Because I've done enough to earn a comma, believe me. I've done enough to earn a lot of commas. And John, who betrayed this way and this way and this way and you've done enough to earn a lot of commas why does Judas get a comma and we don't get a comma it's because we we've come to the Lord in repentance we've asked for forgiveness not just of our actions but our character and been restored and when we're restored in that confidence then the comma is taken away oh there might be other people who when they talk about when my name comes up they've got a lot of commas and that's fine with them God doesn't have a comma, and that's where I really look. Other people might. But here's a problem that I have, that I see in a lot of our lives. You may have already confessed your sin to God and received forgiveness, and he's taken the comma away, but you still like to put it there. You still like to put the comma, because, and and I'll just call that what it is. Sometimes that's just straight up pride, isn't it? Like, my sin is so big, God, God can't even forgive it. So I still have to bear some pain and some suffering because of what I've done. But friends, I want to assure you that when you come to God in repentance and you ask for that forgiveness, he takes the comma away. So don't put it back. Don't keep explaining the comma and what follows. There might be consequences. There might be impacts on relationships. I'm not saying that. But don't keep putting a comma where God's erased it. So a few action steps just to wrap up. Remember that your failures do not negate God's promises and his faithfulness to his promises. That's why I pointed out what was happening in this chapter had been prophesied. God had promised what was going to happen here. His promises are true and real in our life as well. Second, let your failures come as you follow Christ where others fear to follow. Let your failures come as you follow Christ where others fear to follow. 
Peter gets a really bad rap, but let's put it, look at it this way. At least Peter failed in the courtyard. Where were the other guys, right? He failed in the courtyard. Sometimes I tell people when I'm working on life issues and stuff, as long as I'm fumbling the ball closer to the end zone this week than I was last week, I'm making progress. And when I get to heaven, I'm not going to fumble the ball at all anymore. So if we're going to fumble the ball, let's fumble the ball as we're moving forward in this mission of following after Jesus and seeking to be his people. And then the last one, come to Jesus with genuine repentance and brokenness. Come to Jesus with genuine repentance and brokenness. And some of you need to do that right now. And I want to, I want to assure you, not based on my word, but based on God's word, that when you come to him in repentance, he will forgive, he will erase the comma. And he will give you by the power of his spirit the ability to boldly walk in repentance and walk in a path of faith. Can we just bow our heads right now a little bit? I'm gonna, for a little bit, I'm gonna give you a minute just to explore your own heart and let the Holy Spirit talk to you about those areas of betrayal and areas of sin in your life that you need to repent of and help, help experience that comma being removed. Let's just take a minute quietly and pray in our own hearts to God. God, as you're bringing to mind the areas of sin, the things that we've done, and even the character issues, the, the ways that we've not been the men or the women who you've called us to be. And if we have to face the ugly truth, we can identify a lot with Peter in that courtyard. And we are so thankful that there was another trial going on in that, court, in that chapter, the trial Jesus was going through, where he boldly stayed on task of his mission to redeem us. And so like Peter, through repentance, we can know the removal of all the commas, that there's no more commas behind our name because we've been accepted by the blood of Jesus Christ. So I pray for those in this room who are right now pleading with you for forgiveness, pleading with you to restore them, to establish them, to take away the comma, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would flood their heart with assurance and love and acceptance that they will be able to walk from this room, not with a comma behind their name, but with an exclamation point that they are saved and redeemed because of what you've done. And we want you to get all the glory and all the praise. We pray this in Jesus' holy name, amen. Now, if you want to talk more about that or if you want to pray with someone we're going to have our prayer team here after the service I'll be up here let's keep talking about this let's make sure we're encountering this God who wants to take away the commas from our lives thanks for being here today we'll see you next week